Alrighty, we're back in the Gospel of Matthew this morning, Matthew chapter 17, and uh, I want to thank all those who came and helped take down the decorations Friday night, appreciate that, and all the hard work on the bulletin boards and everything, we appreciate all, all your help for getting all that taken care of. This morning I want to speak to you beholding his glory. <clears throat> uh, and we're, we're speaking of the transfiguration out of Matthew chapter 17. And just in way of review and introduction, uh, one thing I want us to ponder this morning, just as we open this message, is the understanding of how God is revealed to us in Scripture. Usually the glory of God is revealed to us by light. He's revealed as light. Um, Luke twenty four thirty nine says that a spirit has not flesh and bones. The Bible says that God is spirit and therefore he is invisible. We can't normally see him. God has no form, as it were. And when God revealed himself in the Old Testament, he chose to reveal himself always as a blazing light, staggering light. In Exodus chapter 33, verse 18, Moses said, show me your glory. He requested that. And God allowed him just to see part of his backside, the scripture says. And it had a visible effect on Moses when he came down off of the mountain in Exodus 34, you can tell his, he was beaming, his face was glowing because he came in contact with the glory of God. You also remember in Exodus 40 when the tabernacle, the symbol of God's presence was built. It says in Exodus 40, verse 34 and 35, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon. And when it was time for the people to travel in the wilderness, the glory of God would go up into the sky as a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And when the people entered the promised land and built the temple, in 1 Kings 8, 11, it says, The glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's the light of God in the Old Testament. We also know the scripture speaks of the light of Christ. In the Gospels, God reveals himself, as we had just celebrated through Christmas, the incarnation of his son. And he revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, as light, it says, veiled in human flesh. Jesus was the Shekinah of God, the Shekinah glory of God. And Scripture tells us when Jesus returns, he will come in glory. Jesus Christ is also revealed as light. He said himself in John 8, 12, that I am the what? Light of the world. He that follows me should not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. But there's also a light in heaven that's spoken of. In Revelation 21, it gives us details of that eternal heaven and that holy city one day will be there. The new Jerusalem, the eternal habitation of the saints verse 23 says the city has no need of sun neither of the moon to shine in it for the glory of god did light it and the lamb is the lamp of it see in jesus in heaven jesus is the lamp containing the light of the glory of god and when jesus lived on earth his glory was veiled within him you didn't always see his glory but in heaven it will be unveiled. When Jesus wanted to reveal himself as he really is, he pulled back the veil of his flesh and he revealed the Shekinah glory of God. And that's what we're going to find out happens this morning. Now, I just want to read our verses for us so we know kind of where we're going in verses 1 through 13 of Matthew chapter 17. 
Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And the disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Remember, the theme of Matthew, the theme of the Gospel of Matthew is to present Christ as king. That's the goal. It's Matthew's purpose to present Jesus Christ as king. And when the king first came, you remember, he came into the world, and what happened? He was rejected, and they rejected his kingdom. But when he returns one day, he will be acclaimed royally, and crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you know the fact of the second coming is probably one of the most important truths that we find in the Gospel of Matthew? It's found in chapter 24, chapter 25, chapter 26. The second coming of Christ is mentioned 1,527 times in the Old Testament. 300 and 19 times in the New Testament. The second coming of Christ is not a message that just is restricted to the New Testament only. It's it's found in the Old Testament as well. And the disciples should have understood that the Messiah would suffer first. Then he was going to be glorified. But they didn't. They didn't get that. They missed that part. So the Lord gave them a promise the promise of the preview of his kingdom, of the glory. And we looked at that last time when we were closing up chapter 16. In verse 28 is his promise. Assuredly, he says, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. He promised them a preview of his second coming. Promised him a preview of his coming kingdom. Promised them a preview of his glory. The Lord did not want them to doubt that he was going to come back. So he gave them just a little glimpse, just a little peek. And it served to balance their understanding because he just got done telling them what was going to happen to him. He was going to have to go and die at the hands of the leaders in Jerusalem. And not only was he going to have to die, but he laid out basically... Whoever comes after me is going to have to die as well. That's kind of a discouraging (laughs) speech to have to make to your followers. I'm going to die first, and then you're going to have to die. (laughs) So they needed some encouragement at this point. And they were encouraged because... They now knew that humiliation meant ultimate glory. The only way to receive the glory of God is through the humiliation of the soul. The Bible is very clear about that. God hates the prideful heart, but he gives grace to the humble. Romans 8.17 says, If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. See, it's through the suffering within the Christian life that we live, the tribulation and the trials that we go through, sometimes even the persecutions that we face. It's through those things that 
the glory of God is revealed in our lives through the suffering. We don't hear that a lot of times in the gospel message. We hear all the positive things about the gospel message. When's the last time you heard an evangelist said, yeah, come to Jesus because one thing's going to happen if you come to Jesus, you're going to suffer. <laughs> you don't hear that. You hear pie in the sky, you hear all this other stuff. Jesus will make your marriage happy, your family happy, your wallet thick, and all this other stuff. But you don't hear that, you know what, you may have to die. You will have to die. And that's what he just told his disciples. If you come after me, you're going to have to deny yourself. Bottom line. So what's he doing here? What is this transfiguration all about? See, some people find it hard to understand this section here in chapter 17 with the section in verse 28 of chapter 16. Remember, in the original text, there was no division here. <laughs> There's no division here, really. And the, really, the, the people who kind of came up with these divisions, I think they missed it here. I think this should just be continuation of what was going on in the end of chapter 17. And those are just addresses that man has put into God's holy scripture. They're not inspired. But the words that we find in there are. And so some people say, well, what do you mean he's promising his coming and now you're saying that this is what he promised? See, you have to understand in scripture, sometimes, even in the Old Testament, when a prophet would prophesy something, What he prophesied may not happen until thousands and thousands of years later. But to add to his credibility, sometimes some of that prophecy that was foretold thousands of years would take place right then. Example of that is in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. And we see on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts in Matthew, or in in Acts chapter 2, It speaks of Joel's prophecy in verses 17 to 21. And Joel's prophecy is related to the second coming of Christ. That's what it's related to. And when you read through that, not everything happened on that day of Pentecost. Some of it did, but not all of it. And what God did is he gave them just a little preview, just a little taste of what it's gonna, what's going to happen when Christ does return. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's giving them just a little taste of the glory of God that will be in heaven and when Christ returns one day. In Acts, Peter wasn't claiming that all the elements of Joel's prophecy were fulfilled. Some of them were. They were just giving a glimpse. In fact, everything that Jesus did in his ministry, all his signs, all his wonders, all the miracles that he performed, Even those performed by the apostles, you could say, are a taste of his second coming. They're a taste, they're a preview of things to come. It's like sitting in a movie theater and watching the, you know, the uh, the little uh, previews that they have. Kind of whets your appetite. Well, I might want to see that. I don't want to see that. You know, it whets your appetite. That's why the writer in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 says that the law is a shadow of good things to come. So it was common in the Old Testament for a prophet to couple a prophecy for the near future with a prophecy to the distant future. Now, in our human mind, we don't necessarily understand that, but that's exactly what would happen. And when those prophecies came true on the right then and there, that gave credence to what he said would happen thousands of years. And so Jesus here is telling them, I'm going to return. I'm going to come back. And to prove it, he predicted that some of his disciples wouldn't die until they saw him in his regal glory. See, people read verse 28 and say, well, I'm sure all these people died. I mean, Jesus still hasn't come back. His kingdom's still not set up. And these people were dead. What does that mean? What he's saying is, I'm going to give you a preview of the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that's what he does in his transfiguration to encourage their hearts. I'm just going to give you a little bit, a little taste, so that you're going to get through everything that you're facing. All the hardships. All the difficult 
times ahead. And we can see that in, in several different um, places in Scripture. But let's look at this scene. Let's look at what exactly is happening here. First of all, in verse 1, it tells us the time. It tells us what time this happens. It says, now after what? Six days. It's funny because Luke 9.28 says it was about eight days. Uh Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Matthew says six days. Luke says eight days. Contradiction in Scripture. No, it's not. Matthew is probably referring to the exact time. Remember what he was. He was what? He was a tax man. He was an accountant. Precise. Luke was probably more speaking in general terms. Matthew may have been referring to the number of days between the promise and its fulfillment, while Luke may have been including the day of the promise and the day of the fulfillment. Who knows? But there's no contradiction there. That's just a little side note. But it says after six days, look at who he takes with him. Look at the people. He takes Peter, James, and John, his brother. Those three disciples. We know from other stories that in Scripture that they were the most intimate with our Lord. Along with Andrew, they were the first gathered to his side in Matthew 4, 18, 22. Jesus drew the three of them away from the rest of the disciples on several occasions. And you wonder, say, why, why would he do such a thing? Well, I think, first of all, they were about to see something. And in their culture, Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, says that there's a principle that any testimony has to be confirmed by what? Two or three witnesses. Right? So as a result of the two or three witnesses... He needed to take at least that many with him. And the Lord wanted to display his glory, and he wanted it confirmed by trustworthy witnesses. If he just would have taken one, it wouldn't have held up culturally. Also, they were the closest with Christ. Peter, James, and John were were closest of the disciples. Um, You remember, they, they were the ones that frequently accompanied him at times of prayer, usually intimate times of prayer. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, they were there on the night he agonized over his coming death in Mark 14. So it seems proper that those who knew him most intimately, knew his sorrow and his suffering, would also share in just a peak of his glory. And if you stop and think, They all suffered, these disciples. Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was exiled. So when you look at it from that perspective, they they deserved to see his glory. They were also trustworthy leaders among the disciples. They were men of great spiritual rapport. When it came to articulate what happened, they could be trusted by others outside their circle. They could convince and influence the other disciples as well. And I also think the reason he didn't take everybody, the reason Jesus didn't say to the bunch of people gathered there and the rest of the disciples, hey, come here, I want to show you something. Can you imagine the chaos that would ensue after they saw Christ transfigured and then Moses and Elijah? I mean, what would the people have wanted to do? Think about it. After he fed, remember when he fed all the the thousands of people? Did that miraculous feeding? What did they want to do? They wanted to kidnap him and make him king. Politically. See, they're always thinking politically. And so if they would have seen the transfiguration, the mob would have taken over. And they would have said, hey, this is the guy to overthrow the Roman rule over us. We're going to do it whether he wants it or not. So it was by the divine plan of God that he wanted to prevent that from happening at this point. And Jesus restricted the preview of his glory to Peter, James, and John. Well, it tells us where he took them. It's after six days. He took the three of them, and it says he took them up on a high mountain by themselves. 
privately. You say, well, what's the high mountain? We don't know. It doesn't say. There's a lot of speculation, different ones, Mount Hermon, Mount, a whole bunch of different mountains. But we don't know. It just doesn't say. So it must not have been important. Located somewhere in Upper Galilee, south of Caesarea Philippi, because that's what the context tells us where they were at. But after they arrived at their destination, it must have been a hike because Luke chapter 9, verse 32 says that the disciples were soon sleeping. <laughs> it seems every time Jesus pulls these guys away to spend some time with them, these, these individuals especially, they end up falling asleep. While they were sleeping, Luke 9.28 says Jesus was praying. And we see that same scenario, don't we, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples were asleep on that occasion also, and Jesus had to rebuke them. Can't you stay with me one hour? Can't you watch with me one hour? Luke 22.45 tells us that they were sleeping for sorrow. They were sleeping for sorrow. I mean, think about it. They've been faced with some monumental information. Their Messiah, their leader, Jesus, is going to go and he's going to die. He's going to give up his life. That didn't make logical sense for them. And I imagine they got a little depressed at some point. And if you've ever been depressed, what do you want to do when you're depressed? Sleep. I mean, people take sleeping pills if they can't sleep, just so they don't have to deal with reality. And so perhaps the disciples slept because they knew it was the only way to deal with their sorrow. We don't know. And the same thing might have happened here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Maybe the information that Jesus just told them about dying and giving up his life just overloaded them. I mean, think about it. You're, you're with somebody who's doing all these miraculous things and feeding thousands of people, and you're seeing people raised from the dead and healed, and then he comes to a point in his ministry, and he says, you know what, I have to go die. <laughs> that wouldn't make any sense to the normal human being. So they wanted to escape from their sorrow. Because only a few days before, Jesus predicted that he would be killed, and they would follow him by taking up their cross as well. And something about the disciples, you have to understand, they always saw things in the worst possible light. Did you ever notice that? Just, I mean, you know, you have the Son of God with you in a, in a boat and you're on the, on the ocean and, or the sea and it's, it's you know, a bad storm. But you, you have somebody who's miraculous here. You know, what do they do? Oh, we're all going to die. They, they always see things in the worst possible light. Light. You think of Thomas on one occasion, John eleven sixteen. He says, well, let us also go to Jerusalem that we may die with him. You know, they always, that was just their attitude. And so when the three disciples came out of their sleep, basically an incredible thing happened, unlike anything that has ever happened before in the history of the world. This has never happened before. And this speaks of the transfiguration. Now, just to show you a little bit of the impact that this had, look at these verses that I wrote there in your outline. 2 Peter 1.16. Here's what Peter had to say. This is, this is the effect that this had on these, these gentlemen. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming, notice, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what's he say? But we were what? Eyewitnesses of his majesty, okay, of his glory. And then even John chapter 1, verse 14. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? We beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, it says, Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and what? Great glory. And even in Revelation chapter 1, John writes of the glory of Christ, the glory of God. Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. It says, His head and his hair were white as wool. This is a vision that John got to see. As white as snow and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Once again, you have this brilliance, this, this shining effect that comes out of the glory of God. Well, when they woke up, this is exactly what they saw. I mean, talk about being startled. Have you ever been asleep and someone startles you? Someone wakes you up, maybe something happened or whatever. They wake you up and you're like, ah, oh, you know, you're kind of... Can you imagine being sound asleep and when you wake up, all of a sudden you see the sun transform before you? It says there in verse 2, and he was transfigured before them. He was transfigured before them. That word transfigured means, it comes from a Greek word, metamorpho, which we get the word what? Metamorphosis, change. He was changed. It refers to the form. His form was totally changed. The person that led them up to this place, they fell asleep, they opened their eyes, and all of a sudden he was totally changed before these three disciples. How was he changed? The glory of God was unveiled. It was radiating from inside of Christ outward. See, before they saw the glory of God, but it was always on the outward. They saw him heal people. They saw him raise people from the dead. They saw him feed thousands of people with nothing. They saw him walk on water. All those things were outward effects of the glory of God. And they look at it and well, wow. But it was still just Jesus. Do you understand? It was still, they could reach out and they could touch him. But when they opened their eyes this time, something changed. It was almost as if God had turned a light bulb on. And the glory of God dwelt out of the Son of God. And it wasn't coming from the outside in. It was coming from the inside out. The Shekinah glory of God was just emanating from the body of Christ. Whenever God, who is spirit, chose to manifest his invisible essence in the Old Testament, we said he does so as light. And the, as the sun was transformed here, they were truly, truly awestruck. I mean, you wonder sometimes what it's going to be like to depart from this life and all of a sudden be in the presence of God in heaven. I was going through my phone the other day and cleaning up some contacts. And I came across two contacts. And I thought, okay, should I delete these or not? One was my brother Bob. Had all his information. Still had it in there. I don't know why. And I'm kind of struggling with this. And I'm looking at him like, well, and I started thinking, well, wait a minute. I know where he's at. You know, why keep him down here? I mean, he's in glory. He's, he's within the, the realms of heaven. His body is made whole. He's not suffering. He's not, you know, looking down at me going, okay, are you going to delete it or not? He's not concerned with those things. So many times people say, oh, the people in heaven are looking down, you know, old grandpa, he's looking down. No, he's not. You think that when you're in the presence of God, you're going to want to look down on this puny little earth with its puny little people and all its sin and go, what are they doing today? I don't think we're going to care. We're going to be so caught up with the glory of Christ and the glory of God. That's not even going to matter. And the other one was my other brother, Jim. And I thought, well, a little unsure where he's at, but you know what? It's in the hands of God. So many times we 
we forget that people that pass from this life to the next, if they're in Christ, if they're Christians, man, we can be assured that they are in a much, much, much better place. Amen? We have to remember that. And they saw a glimpse of that glory that one day they would be faced with face to face. Well, look at what happens. Because the next thing we see is these saints from the Old Testament start testifying of the Son of God. It said, His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as light. And that's what Scripture says when the glory of God is revealed. But that's not all. It says in verse 3, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. I mean, can you imagine, if it's not incredible enough to see the Son of God in all his glory, but then you see Moses and Elijah standing there talking with him. Luke, you might want to know, you might say, well, I wonder what they were talking about. Well, Luke 9.31 uh, tells us, over in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us what they were talking about. It says in Luke chapter 9, And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. And what were they speaking with him about? His departure, his decease, his exodus, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So you have two representatives from the Old Testament. One, Moses, the giver of the law. Moses is synonymous with the Old Testament. Matter of fact, a lot of times you hear people speak of the Old Testament as what? Moses and the prophets, right? Well, here, God covered both bases. He gave you Moses and he gave you Elijah. Moses, the giver of the law. Elijah, the guardian of the law. I mean, Moses was perhaps probably the greatest leader that ever lived. Stop and think about it. He coordinated some two million people in a 40-year trek around the desert. I mean, talk about a logistical nightmare, folks. At the time when Israel had no king, he was their authority. At the time Israel had no prophets, he spoke for God. At the time when Israel had no priest, he led them to God. Moses was very dynamic in the history of Israel. Moses served Israel as king, priest, and prophet, and he was a leader among leaders. If you want a good lesson on leadership, read about Moses. Beyond that, Moses was the agent of the Ten Commandments. The law of God came through the instrument through whom God gave the law, which expressed his will and revealed his character. But then you have also Elijah, the guardian of the law. He's probably one of the only Old Testament prophets who could stand up with Moses. And that's Elijah. I mean, what he do? He fought constantly against the nation's idolatry. Moses gave the law, Elijah guarded it. And he had zeal beyond zeal. He had courage. He spoke words with boldness. He spoke profound judgment into the lives of people. He had a heart for God. He had miraculous power. 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 1. I mean, you read through that. Every prophet should have been like Elijah. And so Moses and Elijah together, paired together, they represent the law and the prophets. And in their presence, we have the transfigured Christ, who's an affirmation of the law and the prophets. And you see the deity of Christ affirmed through this whole scenario. In Matthew 5, 17, it says that Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. He didn't come to replace it. And so the presence of Moses and Elijah was striking because it confirmed exactly what he did. And what they speak about, they spoke about the departure of Christ, his death, 
They were talking about the death of Christ. Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking together about his final departure. That word translated decease or departure, exodus, literally, it means final outcome. They were talking about his death as an exodus, as a departure. And stop and think of the the corollary here. Just as the exodus under Moses delivered the people of Israel from the bondage of Egypt, so the exodus of Christ's death would deliver his people from the bondage of what? Of sin. See how it ties together? And see, this is one element that the disciples just couldn't understand. They couldn't get the idea that the Messiah was going to come in all his glory, but he's going to die first? Wait a minute. I don't understand this. They just couldn't get it. But see, the presence of Moses and Elijah as representatives of the law and the prophets, it almost kind of confirmed that this was God's plan, and it was still on schedule. And when they heard Moses and Elijah talking with Christ about his eventual death, they realized this is part of God's plan. I mean, what an important conversation to overhear. It was that conversation, I believe, that enabled Peter to declare on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, here's what he said, that the Lord was delivered, how? By the determined counsel and foreknowledge of God. In other words, this was no mistake that Jesus died on a cross. They didn't kill him. He gave his life up. It was all part of God's overall plan. You see, Jesus Christ didn't die as a well-meaning patriot who got in a little over his head and upset the religious authorities and couldn't get out of it before it was too late. That's not how he died. He was ordained to die before the foundation of the world. That's what the scripture says. Somebody says, well, well, who killed killed Jesus? You know who killed Jesus? God killed Jesus. (laughs) That's a hard thing to understand, but that's exactly what the Bible says happened. His death is as much as God's plan as the second coming is. And it was important for the disciples at this critical juncture to understand that. Because the disciples were frightened by what they saw. And yet, kind of mingled in their fear there was a sense of awe. Because they'd just been confronted with the glory of God. Sometimes when we're in that state, when we're in a somebody scares us or we're just in an awestruck state, sometimes we say things that may be inappropriate. Sometimes we say things that we normally wouldn't say. Well, that's exactly what happens in Matthew 17. They see Jesus transfigured. Then they see Moses and Elijah standing there. And look at what happens next in verse 4. Then Peter, don't you just love Peter? It's always Peter. He's always the one that, you know, is first to say something. I had a... a Dr. Bailey taught at a uh, chapel one time, and he, he referred to Peter as pendulumic Peter. One minute he's over here, the next minute he's over here. You just never know what's going to come out of Peter's mouth. And so... Peter, feared in awe, he didn't know what to say. It says, then Peter answered. Well, what was he answering? Do you wonder? I mean, nobody asked him a question. I mean, there was, there was, there was no question posed to Peter, but just Peter, the way he is, well, I've got to say something here. I mean, I can't just let this moment go by. So he said to Jesus, Lord, you know what? It's good for us to be here. I mean, couldn't you just see Peter? You know what I think we should do, Lord? We should, we should make, make, make three tabernacles here. I'll make one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You see where Peter's headed? Do you see just the fact that he wants to make three tabernacles? What's he doing? He's putting Jesus on the same plane as Moses, as the same plane as Elijah. Sometimes, you know, we do that in our own lives. We put our, our needs, our cares, our concerns on the same plane as God's plan, as God's purpose, as God's desires for our lives. 
I mean, do you think Peter meant any harm in doing this? I don't think he meant any harm. Just like sometimes we don't mean any harm when we kind of level off the playing field when it comes to the priority that God may have for our lives. We just think it's best. Makes sense to us. He didn't want this experience to end. He wanted to continue it. That phrase, Lord, it is good, means, you know what, this is, this is a very excellent time. This is perfect. This is, I, I am at the top of my game right now. This is what Peter's thinking. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. And he loved what he was experiencing with the glory of God. So he makes this suggestion. And it was a foolish one. Very foolish. Because look at what happens next. (laughs) Verse 5, while he was still speaking. In other words, he hadn't shut up yet. We don't know what else he said. Who knows, right? He's just rambling on because he's just awestruck. He doesn't know what to do. We're going to build three booths. While he's still speaking, it says, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, Shut up. Basically, that's what it said. That's the effect it had, I guarantee it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. No one asked you anything. Just stop talking. God was telling Peter to keep quiet. It's not the right time to say stupid suggestions. Just to say them because you're nervous and you don't know what else to say. You ever been with people when they're nervous, they start to talk? <laughs> and they start to talk and, and they just start talking about stuff. And you, you just sit there and listen to them. It's like, okay, I know what they're talking about. It's not making any sense. But they just talk because they, they're, they're nervous. God was saying, you know what, just be quiet. See, his attitude wasn't wrong. But there was something very foolish about his request because Peter didn't, Peter didn't understand, first of all, he didn't realize that this was only a preview. He didn't realize that. He thought, here it comes. The kingdom's coming. This is great. Let's celebrate. No, this is only a preview. See, you, you, Peter, you still have to go down the mountain. You have to live through suffering and hardship. The Messiah still has to suffer and die. Sometimes that's what happens when we're caught up in the blessings of God in our lives. We want to put everything else on hold and just stay there. And God says, no, it's not about staying where you're at. What are you thinking? You need to move on. You need to move to the next step. Kind of like when you go away to those retreats and you get up on that mountain and you hear the speaker and boy, God just touches your heart and oh man, you just feel like you're, you know, just you and God are... You don't want it to end. You don't want to come back to the rat race of life and the family and the relationships and the kids and work and budgets and all. You don't want to do that. You want to stay up on the mountain. Well, that's not the way life is. He didn't understand this was just a preview. Secondly, he didn't understand that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah can't be given equal treatment. And when Peter offered his suggestion, Moses and Elijah were departing from Jesus. That's what it tells us in 933. Even as he was saying that, they're, they're gone. It says the appearance of Moses and Elijah was temporary. Why? Because their, their purpose was just to salute their divine successor. They represented the law and the prophets. And now here comes one who fulfilled the law and the prophets. And they wanted to leave him alone in the glory for unchallenged supremacy. And if Peter thought building three booths was the answer, that's not. That wasn't in God's plan. He simply didn't know what he was talking about. And you see the Father speak from from heaven. 
The Bible makes a lot of different references to white clouds. Invariably, God is present in them. In Revelation chapter 14, John says, I looked and behold a white cloud, and upon the the cloud one sat like the Son of Man. It gives a whole description. Matthew 17, 5 and, and 6, it says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You need to listen to him. And it says, when the disciples heard it, what they do? They fell on their face. Just wiped them out. And if they were afraid before, they were very much afraid now, it says. Why? Because God was there. In addition to the testimony of the Old Testament saints and the transformation, the transfiguration of the Son of God, here now we have the Father speaking, the testimony of the Father, and He's saying, this is my beloved Son. Why do you think they were fearful? You think that they would just be, wow, this is, they were fearful. The Bible speaks a lot of times when people enter the presence of God, they're fearful. And the reason is, is because God is holy, we are not. God is, is infinitely holy. And we as men and women are hopelessly sinful. And when we're faced with the glory of God and all his holiness, we feel as if we're naked. We feel shameful. We want to hide. Sound familiar? Garden of Eden? Remember? Adam and Eve sinned. says they knew they were naked. They experienced shame. Why? Because their, their sin had been exposed. And when God was looking for them, they hid from them, from him. That's how the disciples felt. They fell flat on the ground after hearing God's voice. When he says, this is my beloved son, that talks about the relationship that they have among the Trinity. I don't understand how that works, but that's exactly what what they have. It's a relationship of love. It's a relationship of obedience. Because he says, I'm pleased in what he's doing. He's obeying me, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus did everything according to the divine plan. Never once did he step one toe over what was not the divine plan. That was very important for Peter to hear because he often second-guessed the Lord. Peter was the one who was always, well, I don't know if we should do it that way, Lord. Let me tell you. But Christ is totally obedient, totally faithful to God. And he went to Jerusalem to suffer and die because that was God's plan. And it also affirms the authority of the relationship. At the end of verse 5, it says, Hear him. God was confirming that when Christ said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, the disciples should listen and obey that, just like we should listen and obey that today. God not only confirmed the deity of Jesus Christ, but he also confirmed the authority of his words. And then we see here in verse 8, Or verse 6, and the disciples heard it. They fell on their faces, greatly afraid. Verse 7, Savior comes and he comforts. But Jesus came and he touched them and said, Arise. Remember, they're face down. They're just blown away by this. Arise, do not be afraid. See, that's what God says to us today. No matter what's going on in your life, no matter how much burden of sin you're carrying around, no matter how many you know, uh, burdens you're carrying, even in your Christian life, Jesus always says, hey, wait a minute. You know, trust me, I'm here. I'm your Savior. I can touch you. Everything's going to be okay. So many times you get called out as a chaplain to certain calls, and sometimes, you know what, all people want is just for you to put your hand on your shoulder and say, you know what? I can't imagine the grief you're going through right now. But I know that, that, that God will work things out. Do you mind if I pray for you? Sometimes people say, I don't want your prayers. Sometimes they say, okay. But even just the fact. I've, I've had people say, I, no, I, I don't feel comfortable praying. But you know what? I thank you for your concern. Just because you're there. You're showing comfort. It says, and when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man except Jesus. See, as fast as the preview came, it was over, beloved. See, and that's how God works sometimes. Sometimes we're blessed with an incredible 
glorious appearing of Christ in our lives, a way he blesses us or something happens, he gets us over, over a hump or a, a, a tribulation or a trial, or whatever, he gets us through it. And we want to we kind of bask in the, the glory. We want to just hang out there. And God says, no, that's not right. You've got to move on. And as soon as the glory came, it was gone. The preview was over. And the reality set in, wait a minute, the kingdom wasn't beginning. This is just a preview of it. The three disciples had seen the Son of Man in His majesty. And they were so traumatized by it, they never forgot it. Years later, when people questioned the reality of Christ's return, Peter could say, the, door, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's how sure he was it was going to happen. It left an indelible mark on their lives. But it ended because it wasn't yet time for glory. Because before glory, first must come what? Suffering. What would your reaction be to this whole thing? I mean, the first thing, I'd want to go tell somebody, right? I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, can you imagine seeing this spectacle in front of your eyes? And look at what happens there. It says, now as they came down from the mountain, and you always have to come down from the mountain, beloved. No matter how cool and clean and fresh the air is up there, you always have to come back down into the valley where the people are where there's sin, where there's unholiness and filthiness and all that. Why? Because that's what he's called us to be, the salt and the light of this world. We can't just sit here in a holy huddle and just pray that everything will go fine. God says, no, you you need to, outside the four walls, you need to make an impact where you work, where you play, you know, all those areas in your life. You should be a light of Christ reaching out to a lost and dying world. Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The disciples waited. If they waited until after the resurrection, people would know that Christ didn't come to conquer the Romans, but to conquer death. That was the purpose. If they just went down and told everybody, they would once again lift him up as a political hero. They didn't want that. He wasn't involved in politics. And his disciples ask him a question. They say, his disciples ask him, saying, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That's what Malachi prophesied, and the scribes were just so focused on that, they even exalted Elijah more than they did Christ. They knew the forerunner of the Messiah was to be Elijah. There were some who even thought that Jesus was Elijah. Remember when he asked, who who do they say that I am? Some say that thou art Elijah. Jesus answered their question. He said, well, you know what? Elijah truly must first come and restore all things. Christ declared Elijah indeed would come and restore all things before the establishment of his kingdom. And then he says this. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Well, what's he speaking of? He's speaking of one coming in the, in the flavor of Elijah, in the spirit of Elijah. That being John the Baptist. And what they do to him? They cut his head off. They killed him. The point is, John was not Elijah himself, but he did come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But the people rejected John, so he couldn't be the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. There yet will be another who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah in the fulfillment of the prophecy before Christ's second coming. You know that if the people had received John the Baptist and believed his message, and if they received the Messiah and allowed him to set up his kingdom, John the Baptist would have been the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. But because that didn't happen, obviously it wasn't part of God's plan, it didn't happen, John the Baptist 
wasn't that person, and they cut his head off. They refused him and cut his head off. Matthew eleven thirteen fourteen says, All the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you will receive it, this is Elijah who was to come. But they didn't receive him. It says, Likewise, just like John the Baptist, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then, it says in verse 13, the light goes on, the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Suffering before the glory is the message here that we see. Jesus tells his disciples that he's going he's to suffer and die, and so are they. And if they deny themselves, they die to their desires and, and their, 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 their sinful cravings and take up the cross, they were going to bear reproach as well. And Christians have been mocked and scorned and martyred throughout the history of the church. It goes on today in countries. When you're a true disciple of Christ, that's what you have to look forward to. But in the future, beloved, the point of this passage is, yeah, you're going to suffer a little, but you know what? It doesn't even compare to the glory that you're going to receive. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. See, that's our great hope. We have a small measure of suffering here in this life, and it's not even worthy to compare it, 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, with the glory that awaits us in Christ. As we close in prayer, I want to ask you this morning, do you have any doubt about who Jesus is? I hope not. I pray that you know in your heart that he's the Savior. He's the one who's come to save and to forgive. Our response should be like Peter, James, and John. We should be thrilled beyond words, even to be in his presence. Yet at the same time, have a healthy dose of fear. That tension should exist in every Christian's life. We delight in his grace and his mercy, and yet we are all of his glory and his judgment. And I pray that as we walk in obedience to his word, we will know the excellencies of his presence in our lives. And unfortunately, when we walk in disobedience, as sometimes we're prone to do, we will truly experience the terror of it. Father, we ask this morning that you would allow your truth to penetrate our hearts. Father, that you would truly allow your glory to, in a small way, transform us. Allow us to be seen as transformed individuals by a lost and dying world. Father, that you would create in them a hunger, a thirst for your glory, for your holiness. That you would give them a distaste for the things of the world, that you would give them a distaste for sin and a desire to know you in a personal way. That can only come from your hand. Father, your word says that you draw us to yourself that you work in our hearts, that you transform us, you take us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. You even grant us repentance. Father, I pray for each individual here this morning that they would truly know that they are in Christ, that their sins have been forgiven, that they have come to the Savior, that they have humbled themselves before the cross. They have acknowledged their, their sinful ways and embraced your glory, your holiness, your desires for their life. Father, that you would save them because you are a saving God. And as believers, when we leave this place, we would be faced with a lost and dying world filled with sin, but we would take heart that one day we will be in the presence of your glory. And until then, 
It's up to us to take the message of the gospel, the life-giving gospel to those who have yet to hear. I pray we'd be bold in our witness in this coming year, 2011. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close with the song.